Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 321 for April 24th, 2023. Got a new show for you today. Lots of fun subjects to cover. Uh, some good, some bad, as, as usual. A good mix. But before we get into the quick uh, overview of what we're going to talk about today, just wanted to say thank you for those of you who left me some great reviews on the book and the podcast. I actually got some new ones for both, which is wonderful. Uh, really, really needed those, uh, particularly for the book, but I needed both and I got both. So thank you for responding to the call. I, I, honestly, I still need more, particularly for the book. So, you know, if you're thinking about doing it, don't call it off now just because I got a couple. I really need more. So uh, thank you very much for the people who did leave some reviews. Uh, again, those are really, really crucial to have, but I could always use more. All right, so we've got a new show for you today. Uh, lots of articles to cover. A few really quick topics to, to tick off quickly. Uh, Molvad VPN was the subject of a search warrant, and that's an interesting story, uh, but a short one. Proton has announced a password manager. Yubico is uh, merging with some company I've never heard of and going public. Facebook probably owes you some money if you are a Facebook customer here in the U.S. They do anyway. I'll tell you how you can get that money, though it's probably not going to be a lot. If you have an Apple HomePod, uh, or maybe you were considering getting one, it can now actually alert you if your smoke alarm goes off. And I'll explain the case where that might be more interesting than it might sound. An Israeli spyware vendor called Quadream, which I've never heard of, was is apparently shutting down after being exposed. The U.S. and several international partners have published a secure by design and secure by default principles document and some approaches. I want to give that a little bit of airtime. Hackers are once again using fake Chrome updates to spread malware. I'll tell you what to watch out for there. The much hyped water plant attack wasn't an attack. It was actually user error. So it's important to set that record straight. I've got a rather long article about how thieves are using modern car technology to actually steal the car. And I've got a lengthy and rather troubling article about medical data. There's been a lot of this in the news lately, uh, but I think it's really important that we cover this. And this is yet another angle on a, a sadly similar thing. But this one was really, this one was really disturbing for me. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that. And then finally, the tip of the week. Uh, courtesy of the FBI and the FCC in the United States, how to avoid juice jacking. And of course, I'll explain what that is. So plenty to talk about today. Let's get to it. All right. First off, I have a few really quick ones. Some of these are actually just press releases, you know, so you always have to take those a little bit of grain of salt, but it's honestly just easier just to read them and then talk about them. First up here is an interesting one from Mulvad, who is a very well-respected VPN provider. I talked about them last week or the week before in reference to uh, their Mulvad browser. Uh, that's also very interesting. Anyway, so here's a quick press release from Mulvad. It just says, on April 18th, at least six police officers from the National Operations Department, or the NOA, of the Swedish police visited the Mulvad VPN office in uh, Gothenburg, which I'm, I'm not going to try to pronounce that in Swedish. I've tried and it's, I do it horribly. So I'll just call it Gothenburg. Anyway, the police showed up at Gothenburg and they intended to seize computers with customer data. In line with our policies, such customer data did not exist. We argued that they had no reason to expect to find what they were looking for and any seizures would therefore be illegal under Swedish law. After demonstrating that this is indeed how our service works and them consulting the prosecutor, they left without taking anything and without any customer information. If they had taken something, that would not have given them access to any customer information. Molvad have been operating our VPN service for over 14 years. This is the first time our offices have been visited with a search warrant. So that is exactly what you want to hear. Uh, for companies that say they are private, for saying they do not retain customer information, the most obvious way to prove that is when the police come up knocking on the door with the warrant and you can basically say, I got nothing to give you. Now, in some cases, what that really means is I've got nothing I can give you that you can make sense of because sometimes they do have information, but it's completely encrypted, but it's encrypted with keys that they don't control, which is effectively the same thing. 
So anyway, from a privacy standpoint, that was a good news story. Next up, Proton, the makers of Proton Mail and Proton VPN and many other Proton products now, have now thrown a password manager into the mix. And just briefly from their press release, today we are happy to announce another significant milestone in the growth of the Proton ecosystem with the launch of the Proton Pass beta for lifetime and visionary users. And those are in caps, those are pricing tiers within Proton. Invites will roll out over the next week, and you'll receive an email from us on your Proton Mail email address when you are eligible. A password manager has been one of the most common requests from the Proton community ever since we first launched Proton Mail. However, while Proton Pass uses end to end encryption to protect your login credentials, it will be much more than a standard issue password manager. This will become clear over the next weeks and months as we prepare Proton Pass for a public launch later this year. And it goes on, actually, it talks about how this was kind of enabled by their merger or acquisition of Simple Login. And of course, we interviewed uh, the founder of Simple Login here not that long ago on the show. And I've interviewed Andy N several times, actually, the CEO of Proton. So anyway, this is good news. I mean, the competition is great. May as well have more of it. Like to have options. We need to see what's going on with this to find out if it's you know that much better or different from some of the other ones I recommend, like One Password and uh, Bitwarden. I am a little bit wary of having some of these things all built into the same app and service because you know it's kind of a one-stop shop in case someone managed to get into your Proton account. Now they would have access to all of this stuff. But generally speaking, you know, hey, the more the merrier. I'll keep you up to date on this as it rolls out. Maybe I'll actually get in on this when the time comes. I can check it out. Uh, and if it's really significant, if I think it's really that much better, I will definitely let you know. Next up, Ubico is merging with some other weird company. And this is a press release, but let me just read briefly. It says, we're excited to share that we have signed the intent to go public through a merger with ACQ Buer, B-U-R-E, a Swedish holding company that is currently publicly traded on NASDAQ Stockholm. We have chosen this path to continue our success to further achieve Ubico's long-term growth and goals. This is in partnership with our existing trusted investors and board who support and are strategically aligned with this merger. The transaction is expected to be completed during the third quarter of 2023, subject to, among other things, approval by the general meeting uh, in ACQ and Ubico, respectively. So anyway, for those of you who use Ubico's hardware security keys, I thought you might be interested to know that. I have no idea, honestly, what this means for the company, if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Time will tell. All right, next up, Facebook, I guess was sued, class action lawsuit a while back for privacy violation stuff. And there was a settlement. And as part of those kind of settlements, Everybody who was a Facebook user during certain periods of time will get a little bit of money. And now so let me let me read read this article and it explains also how you can get your money. Facebook may not be your social media platform of choice in 2023, but if you had an active account at any point in the last 15 years or so, you may be entitled to free money. Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, is paying out $725 million to current and former users as part of a class action settlement, the result of a handful of lawsuits related to Facebook's poor track record on data privacy. For example, users alleged that their data and their friends data was shared with third parties without permission. U.S. users dating back to mid-2007 may be eligible for a payment from the settlement. The exact amount you receive will ultimately depend on how many people file a claim and the sum of legal and administrative fees associated with the suit. In any case, the payment is likely to be small, but something is better than nothing. To be eligible for cash from the settlement, you must have used Facebook between May 24th 2007 and December 22nd, 2022, and submit a claim by August 25th of 2023 at 11.59 p.m. Pacific time. So go to the digital form, and of course, this is a link. So if you go to the show notes and find this article, you can click on this link. Go to the digital form on the settlement website where you'll provide your contact information, including your name, address, phone number, and email, as well as at least one email address, phone number, and or username associated with your Facebook account. You must also attest that you are a Facebook user and residing in the U.S. between the dates I gave. If you had an account during the specified time period but have since deleted it, you must provide the date range you were active. 
You'll also have to provide your preferred payment option, a prepaid MasterCard, PayPal, Venmo, Direct Deposit, or Zelle, should your claim be approved by the settlement. The website also lists the settlement's administrator address, email, and phone number in case you prefer to submit the form by mail or have questions about the process. Note that if you feel invested in the Facebook circus, you should either submit a claim, which is likely to get you some money by August 25th, or opt out, which allows you to make future legal action if you choose by July 26th. If you do nothing, a perfectly fine option if you don't care, you give up your claim to cash as well as your right to sue Facebook separately. So this is a very typical class action lawsuit settlement situation. If you want to get in on the action and take advantage of the class action lawsuit that was already filed, litigated, and settled, uh, you just need to put in a claim saying, yeah, give me some of that. If for some reason you think that that class action lawsuit wasn't good enough for you, or you want to, you know, be a part of some future class action. And instead, you can explicitly opt out in this case, which allows you to then be part of some future class action law settlement. Or you can just do nothing, which by the way, according to this sounds like it means that you don't get to do either of those two things, you don't get any money from this settlement, nor can you participate in a future settlement. I don't know how they manage that last one legally, but okay, there it is. So, uh, I did this uh, just just for the heck of it. I mean, I've got a Facebook account for the business. So uh, on your behalf, I did this just to see what the process was like. The form was simple, asked you for a lot of information. Basically, have to prove that you were a Facebook user by giving them enough information that they can find your Facebook account. You got to tell them about yourself. You got to attest to the fact that you're both a U.S. citizen and that you were a Facebook user for certain dates. But of course, I would think they would know that. And then you got to tell them how you want to get paid. I just went for a prepaid MasterCard, you know, on a direct depositor Zelle probably would have been fine too. One downside to these prepaid MasterCards, and I've always wondered if this is true, but I'm guessing on some level it is, or at least sometimes this is true, is that when you get some of these prepaid MasterCards, they are somehow still registered to you such that whatever you buy with that prepaid MasterCard is probably sent to them somewhere for who knows what reasons, just because capitalism, I don't know. Anyway, I, I don't know that that's true, but I've always kind of suspected that was true. Okay, anyway, next up. Your HomePod, which is Apple's home speaker, smart speaker, uh, can now alert you if your smoke alarm goes off. Let me read a short uh, article here from Mac Rumors. The sound recognition feature that is built into the latest version of the HomePod and the HomePod Mini is now able to detect the beeping of a smoke alarm, sending you an alert if there is an emergency situation. Announced when the new HomePod debuted in January, the sound recognition option is available as of today, and this would have been last week. According to TechCrunch, it can detect both activated smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detectors, sending a notification to an iPhone, iPad, or Apple Watch. If you're at home, you're going to hear a smoke alarm go off. But if you're away, it is a useful feature to ensure that you're alerted as soon as possible when smoke and carbon monoxide is detected. Some smoke detectors are smart and are able to send alerts, but for those who have standard hardware, the HomePod offers peace of mind. Smoke alarm sound recognition can be set up using the Home app on an Apple device. HomeKit setups that incorporate a camera will be able to send a video along with the alert so you can see at a glance what might be wrong and react accordingly. Sound recognition is done through the HomePod or HomePod Mini, and the alert is sent from device to device with no involvement of Apple's cloud servers. So this is interesting. I mean, again, the main thing here is if you're away from home and these things go off, that would be a, a time when you'd want to know this. Obviously, if you're in your home, you would certainly hope that these alarms would, <laughs> you could not miss these alarms, right? That's the whole point. Uh, so what really is more interesting to me is the use case of these things go off while you're not home. Let's say while you're on vacation, and then you can react, but perhaps, you know, call the fire department and send them to your house. I also think it's interesting that they just mentioned there that all of these alerts are actually uh, direct to you and don't involve Apple's cloud servers. I assume that's a privacy thing. So, you know, I'm all for that, of course. If you want to learn how to set this up, there are links in this article. If you just do some web searching, of course, you can find this pretty quickly as well. But these little HomePod minis are pretty cool. They actually sound great. They're very small. They're very handy. Uh, I've got a few of them in my house. Of all these smart digital assistants that listen, it's the only ones I would even think about trusting in terms of uh, privacy. They're about a hundred bucks a piece. They're not super cheap, but they've got some really fun features. You can buy two of them and use them as a stereo pair. If you have an Apple TV, uh, the streaming box, you could use them for speakers for that. 
Of course, you can, you know, send your music to it and things like that. So it's a nice little smart speaker. And of course, it's got built-in Siri, so you can ask it to do stuff. Siri has a long way to go. It's still, it's still still not as good as some of its competitors, but at least it's private. And I'm sure it's going to get better, especially with all this new chat GPT and other super AI stuff coming down the pike. I'm sure it will get better over the years. But it's got a lot of fun features, so it's worth having. And having a HomePod also means that you now have a, a central hub for any other home automation that you want to use with Apple products. So anyway, just another reason why you might want to have one of these things. thought that was a cool idea. All right, next up, this is from the Hacker News, uh, and it's about an, an, yet another Israeli spyware company, one that I had actually, I don't think I'd heard of before this, but it doesn't matter now because they're going out of business. <laughs> so anyway, from Hacker News, Israeli spyware vendor Quadream, that, and that's spelled Q-U-A Dream, is allegedly shutting down its operations in the coming days, less than a week after its hacking toolset was exposed by Citizen Lab and Microsoft. The development was reported by the Israeli business newspaper Calculist, C-A-L-C-A-L-I-S-T, citing unnamed sources, adding that the company, quote, hasn't been fully active for a while and that it has been in a difficult situation for several months, unquote. The company's board of directors are looking to sell off its intellectual property, the report further added. I'll come back to that in a second. Quadream, which specializes in hacking Apple devices that don't require any action on the part of the victim, is also said to have fired all of its employees, with the firm undergoing significant downsizing, according to Heretz and the Jerusalem Post. News of the purported shutdown comes as the firm's spyware framework, dubbed RAIN, that's R-E-I-G-N, was outed as having been used against journalists, political opposition figures, and NGO or non-governmental organization workers across North America, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. Microsoft described Rain as, quote, a suite of exploits, malware, and infrastructure designed to exfiltrate data from mobile devices, unquote. The attacks entailed the exploitation of a now-patched flaw in iOS to deploy sophisticated surveillance ware capable of surreptitiously gathering sensitive information, including audio, pictures, passwords, files, and locations. Apple told the Hacker News last week that there was no indication to suggest that the exploit, codenamed End of Days, has been put to use since the company released iOS 14. 14.4.2 in March of 2021. Quadream, like its Israeli counterparts NSO Group and Kandiru, C-A-N-D-I-R-U, is a private sector offensive actor. This is a, actually an acronym, P-S-O-A, private sector offensive actor, that markets end-to-end -end hacking tools for use by its customers to run their targeted cyber operations. While the company has largely managed to stay under the shadows, Harris reported in June 2021 that its spyware technology was sold to Saudi Arabia to carry out zero-click attacks against targets of interest. Then last year, Reuters revealed that Quadream had independently developed an exploit to break into iPhones in a manner that's comparable to the one provided by NSO Group by leveraging a flaw in iMessage. Apple addressed the vulnerability in September of 2021. The upcoming closure also comes a little over a month after Harris shed light on a previously unknown Israeli cyber mercenary company called NFV Systems for selling its surveillance technologies to foreign countries without obtaining a license from the Ministry of Defense. So a few things. First of all, there's a lot of these companies. Uh, second, there's a lot of them in Israel for some reason. My guess is somehow the Israeli government is just supporting these sorts of operations and therefore it's a good place to be if you're a company like this i mean israel's got some great technology companies anyway but for whatever reason a lot of these hacking companies seem to reside there uh next purportedly the way these things work is the israeli government says okay look you can create this offensive hacking software and, and by offensive here i uh, originally i meant not defensive but it's also rather offensive socially but you've got to then get approval from some agency within the Israeli government uh, in terms of who you are allowed to sell this technology to. The idea being that they only sell it to the good guys for good purposes. But it's been shown time and time again, like here, that somehow this software still ends up in the hands of repressive regimes, countries, and nation states that use it for nefarious purposes, often including targeting journalists and activists and, you know, other people they just don't like. And then finally, 
so they're going out of business and then they're going to sell their intellectual property, which is worrisome. Who are they going to sell it to? Are they going to be as discriminating and, and who gets to buy all this hacking stuff? Is the Israeli government going to also approve who they get to sell that stuff to? That's something a lot of us don't consider with all these companies with any of these technologies they come up with. If, if we trust the original company that created it to do the right thing with that software, what happens when they go out of business or get bought out? So we have to realize in a lot of cases that the mere existence of some of these capabilities is bad. It can be abused by people within that company who don't follow the rules because, you know, for, for whatever reason, it can be exfiltrated by hackers who steal that technology and maybe unbeknownst to the company, it can end up in the wrong hands through mergers and acquisitions. Or in, like in this case, <laughs> it could be sold to the highest bidder at a fire sale when the company goes out of business. All right, moving on. Some more positive news here. And this is yet another positive step by the U.S. government to try to shore up our cybersecurity. And I wanted to call, call some attention to this. Actually, it's not just the U.S. government in this case. It's many other different governments. So let me just briefly read from uh, this announcement from CISA, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, about this new campaign to increase security. And it reads, The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, the National Security Agency, the NSA, and cybersecurity authorities of Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, Germany, Netherlands, and New Zealand published today, quote, shifting the balance of cybersecurity risk, principles and approaches for security by design and default, unquote. This joint guidance urges software manufacturers to take urgent steps necessary to ship products that are secure by design and by default. To create a future where technology and associated products are safe for customers, the authoring agencies urge manufacturers to revamp their design and development programs to permit only secure by design and secure by default products to be shipped to customers. This guidance, the first of its kind, is intended to catalyze progress towards further investments and cultural shifts necessary to achieve a safe and secure future. In addition to specific technical recommendations, this guidance outlines several core principles to guide software manufacturers in building software security into their design processes prior to developing, configuring, and shipping their products, including, first, take ownership of security outcomes of their technology products, shifting the burden of security from the customers. A secure configuration should be the default baseline in which products automatically enable the most important security controls needed to protect enterprises from malicious cyber actors. Two, embrace radical transparency and accountability. For example, by ensuring vulnerability advisories and associated common vulnerability and exposure or CVE records are complete and accurate. And third, build the right organizational structure by providing executive level commitment for software manufacturers to prioritize security as a critical element of product development. Now, it, this thing goes on. Everybody involved in this had to have a quote uh, <laughs> as part of this press release, but I just picked out two of them here. And the first one is from Abigail Bradshaw, who is the head of the Australian Cybersecurity Center. Uh, and Abigail says, quote, cybersecurity cannot be an afterthought. Consumers deserve products that are secure from the outset. Strong and ongoing engagement between government, industry, and the public is vital to putting cybersecurity at the center of the technology design process, unquote. And one more here from Rob Pope, who's the director of computer emergency response uh, in New Zealand. And Rob says, quote, an essential read for organizations wanting to contribute to global cyber resilience. By creating products that are secure, both by design and by default, manufacturers can take much of the burden from end users. These steps are the cyber equivalent of seatbelts, simple inbuilt default practices that keep people safe, unquote. And I like those quotes uh, for two reasons. First of all, I completely agree that we've put way too much onus on the end user for security and privacy. And I know this is focused on security, but uh, privacy by default and privacy by design to me fall right in place with this as well. We've got to make it easier. We've got to make it secure by default. And I know that's going to cause some convenience problems for some people. I know it's going to be frustrating in some cases, but it's got to be done. And the other reason I like that second quote is because it, it uses an analogy, which I use a lot too. And that is, you know, there's so many simple, easy things we can all be doing. Some of which would never have been in place without things like government regulations and seatbelts are one of them. 
All right, moving on. This is from uh, Tom's Guide. And this is about, and I know this has happened before. This is about a case where hackers are using fake Chrome updates to spread malware. And this is a really tricky subject. So anyway, let me, let me read the article and then I'll talk a little bit more at the end. Hackers are once again using fake Google Chrome updates as a means to infect unsuspecting users with malware. This time around, though, they're first going after websites and injecting scripts into them that display fake Chrome automatic update errors, according to Bleeping Computer. The campaign itself began back in November of last year, but in a new report, a security analyst from NTT explains that the hackers responsible expanded its scope in February of 2023 to target even more users. During its investigation into the matter, Bleeping Computer discovered numerous sites that have been hacked in this malware distribution campaign, which include news sites, online stores, blogs, and adult sites as well. If a targeted user does visit one of these hacked sites, the scripts display a fake Google Chrome error screen that says they need to install an automatic update to continue to the site. From here, the scripts automatically download a zip file named release.zip, which is disguised as a Chrome update. Unsuspecting users that fall for this trick end up installing a Monero miner, and a Monero is a type of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, on their PC instead of a legitimate Chrome update. The danger with having a crypto miner like this one installed on your computer is that your system will run slower since it's actually doing quite a lot of work in the background. At the same time though, it could also put additional stress on your CPU, GPU, and other components which would then need to be replaced sooner rather than later. Another interesting thing about this malware campaign is that the crypto miner it installs establishes persistence on a victim's PC by adding scheduled tasks and performing registry modifications. It also excludes itself from Windows Defender, and as a result, Microsoft's antivirus software won't know to remove it from your system. To make matters worse, the malware even stops Windows Update, which could make your PC vulnerable to other malware strains and viruses. Fake updates are one of the easiest way hackers trick victims into infecting their own devices with malware. As such, you should never install any update that appears in a pop-up, and this is especially true with Google Chrome. Instead of pestering you with pop-ups when a new Chrome update is available, Google instead displays a bubble next to your profile picture in the top right corner of its browser. The color of the bubble indicates when the latest update was released, with green for a two-day-old update, orange for a four-day-old update, and red when an update was released at least a week ago. Clicking on this bubble will update your browser to the latest version, but you can also do so manually by clicking on the three-dot menu to the right of your profile picture. From there, you need to go down to the bottom of this menu and click on Help and then About Google Chrome. This will take you to Google Chrome's Settings page, and if an update is available, it will be downloaded automatically and applied the next time you restart your browser. Although this campaign is primarily targeting Japanese, Korean, and Spanish speakers at the moment, NTT warns that the hackers behind it could be looking to expand further since they recently added new languages. Regardless, if you avoid pop-ups or error messages telling you to update Google Chrome, you should be safe. So this malware uh, currently is installing cryptocurrency mining software. So in that sense, it's not it's not really doing anything evil to your machine other than making it really slow. And like this article says, you know, you know, maybe wearing it out faster because mining cryptocurrency takes a lot of processing power. So what these guys are doing is trying to spread this malware all over the world so that they've got all these thousands of computers working together to try to make it money. However, <laughs> there's nothing saying that this malware couldn't eventually do other bad things like turn into ransomware or exfiltrate personal data or honestly be used as an example by another malware gang a group or malefactor who, <laughs> who uses the same technique or hijacks this malware to do other things. So the upshot of all of this is, is really, really be careful when you get pop-up messages when browsing the web on any browser, by the way, uh, not just Google Chrome, but as you're browsing the web, if you get a pop-up telling you that, hey, you need to install this plugin or you need to update your software or I found an error, click here to fix. These are all techniques designed to get you to click on something, download something, and install something, and it's almost always malware of some form or shape. I've also seen really interesting cases where they look like you know, regular operating system pop-up dialogues. Like It looks like it's not really in your browser. It looks like something that should be kind of over your browser, like a, you know, a window from your operating system, not from the browser. 
but you'll notice that if you either drag the browser window that 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 pop-up window moves as well or if you try to drag that window off the edge of your browser it can't go there because really it's the browser doing it not your operating system this is tricky stuff man i mean <laughs> these guys have gone to great lengths to fool you into thinking these things are real and, and clicking on them, sometimes making it hard to avoid clicking on them. Uh, there's often a fear factor or an urgency factor involved, like you need to do this right away or really bad things are going to happen or things are going to get worse. So the more urgent or scary these things are, the more you should be wary of them. And generally speaking, if you get something like this and you think it might be real, close out of it, quit out of it, make a go away in the least interactive way you can. Sometimes the, sometimes even like clicking on the little X that's supposed to close the window still starts the download because they've faked out the close part of the hat to actually do something else. So you might, you know, just close that entire tab on your browser. You might try quitting your browser entirely though. Sometimes when you bring it back up, it goes right back to the page you were on, but you want to avoid interacting with that pop-up uh, as much as possible and just get rid of it. And then if you're really worried about it, try to independently verify through some other means that you've got a problem. If you think you've got a software update, again, like if it's Google Chrome saying you need an update, this article tells you how to go and update Google Chrome. If it's a plugin or something that says you need, you might do some investigation on that to see if that's real. It probably isn't. If it's an operating system update, you can, you can actually just go directly to your operating system settings, either on Mac or Windows and do a check for updates. But do not trust those pop-ups. They're almost always fake. All right, let's move on. This is a really interesting story, and I, I'm not really sure what to make of this, but it's from Vice. Let me just read it then, and then we'll talk about it. The FBI determined that a 2021 security incident that changed the settings of Oldsmar, Florida's water supply wasn't a hack at all. A former top city official now says it was user error, and the FBI says it has found no evidence of a hack. At the time, the Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Gualteri, it's hard to pronounce, held a press conference where he claimed that, quote, the hacker changed the sodium hydroxide from about 100 parts per million to 11,100 parts per million, unquote, in the town's water supply, noting that these were dangerous levels of the chemical. When asked if this should be considered an attempt at bioterrorism, the sheriff said, quote, what it is is someone hacked into the system not just once, but twice opened the program and changed the levels from 100 to 11,100 parts per million with a caustic substance. So you label it however you want. Those are the facts, unquote. Now, more than two years later, Al Braithwaite, the city manager at the time, is calling it a non-event, according to comments he made at the American Society for Public Administration's annual conference. And this is a quote from Braithwaite. It says, quote, the FBI concluded there was nothing, no evidence of any access from the outside, and that it was likely the same employee that was purported to be a hero for catching it was actually banging on his keyboard, unquote. The FBI told the Tampa Bay Times that it has no evidence this was a cyber attack. And this is a quote from the, uh, from the FBI, quote, Through the course of the investigation, the FBI was not able to confirm that this incident was initiated by a targeted cyber intrusion of Oldsmar. We have no further comment beyond this statement, unquote. This apparent non-event is notable because the supposed hack against Oldsmar has been considered one of the more significant cybersecurity events affecting an American town. It is often used as an example by cybersecurity experts of the risks that hackers pose to critical infrastructure and the tangible effect that hackers may have on the physical world. We still don't have full details of what happened in this case, but it still highlights the vulnerability of software-controlled water systems that can be accessed remotely. At the time, the city said that the hacker remotely accessed the software controls that affected the chemicals levels of the system. And it goes on a little bit. So I, I talked about this when it happened, and I'm sure that I've brought it up myself as an example of what could go wrong when hackers get into some of these public utility systems. So unfortunately, it turns out it didn't actually happen, at least not the way it was reported. I've heard different takes on this about what did happen. And from what I gather, it was actually pretty obvious early on that, that it was not a hack. I'm not sure how this got so far out of hand and how the story blew up like it did, other than I guess it's a sensationalistic story and everybody just kind of ran with it, including I'm sure a lot of people like me who assumed that the reporting was correct and used that as the poster child for, Hey, we got to watch out for stuff like this. This is really important. See, see, see what happens when, <laughs> when you don't protect your stuff. 
Okay, so of course that is still true. We still definitely have to protect our stuff. This could have happened. It just turns out <laughs> that it didn't in this case. Now, again, the way, the way I remember the story, story going was that there was an employee at this water treatment facility plant in Florida. And of course, in treating the water, they add some chemicals to it to try to kill bacteria and things like that without killing the humans downstream, uh, almost literally. And one of these things is a chemical called sodium hydroxide, or more commonly known as lye, L-Y-E. And so they put 100 parts per million of lye into the water to help clean it up or whatever. And the story was this employee was you know, at his computer or whatever and noticed that on a neighboring computer, all of a sudden the mouse started moving on its own and the settings came up and the settings got changed from 100 parts per million to 11,100 parts per million, which is a lot more potentially lethal amount of lye sodium hydroxide in the water. And that because this person had seen it, they caught it in time and nothing bad happened. That's how I remember the story going. Uh, apparently it, what really happened was that that employee actually somehow messed up and changed the settings. And so I don't know how we got from the one story to the other. I don't know if this person actually lied originally and was caught or if someone just misheard the story and ran with it. I don't know. But apparently it, none of the hacking part of that ever happened. It was just complete user error and why it took this long, two years to, to figure out that that is the case is completely beyond me. That is the story that I want to know. I want to know why it took this long for this to happen. I want to know why this got so blown out of proportion and, and how the, all the news people, including myself, I guess, got it, got it so wrong. But it absolutely does not change the fact that a lot of our critical infrastructure systems are capable of being accessed remotely, uh, either by employees or former employees or rogue employees or hackers. And we definitely need to be protecting them to prevent things like this from occurring, uh, even though <laughs> this particular case turns out didn't really happen. All right, to wrap up, I've got a couple longer articles. The first one is from the register, and it's about a very interesting technique for hacking into and stealing modern vehicles. Automotive security experts say they have uncovered a method of car theft relying on direct access to the vehicle system bus via a smart headlamps wiring. It all started when a Toyota RAV4 belonging to one of the tech gurus suffered suspicious damage to the front wing and headlight housing and was eventually successfully stolen. Some sleuthing and reverse engineering revealed how the motor was finally nicked. Ken Tyndall, CTO of Canis Automotive Labs, says the evidence points to thieves' successful execution of a so-called CAN injection. The Controller Area Network, or CAN bus, is present in nearly all modern cars and is used by microcontrollers and other devices to talk to each other within the vehicle and carry out the work they are supposed to do. In a CAN injection attack, thieves access the network and introduce bogus messages as if it were from the car's smart key receiver. These messages effectively cause the security system to unlock the vehicle and disable the engine immobilizer, allowing it to be stolen. To gain this network access, the crooks can, for instance, break open a headlamp and use its connection to the bus to send messages. From that point, they can simply manipulate other devices to steal the vehicle. And this is a quote from Tyndall. Quote, in most cars on the road today, these internal messages aren't protected. The receivers simply trust them, unquote. The discovery followed an investigation by Ian Tabor, a cybersecurity researcher and automotive engineering consultant working for the EDAG Engineering Group. It was driven by the theft of Tabor's RAV4. Leading up to the crime, Tabor noticed the front bumper and arch rim had been pulled off by someone and the headlight wiring plug removed. The surrounding area was scuffed with screwdriver markings, which, together with the fact the damage was on the curbside, seemed to rule out damage caused by a passing vehicle. More vandalism was later done to the car, gashes to the paintwork, molding clips removed, and malfunctioning headlamps. A few days later, the Toyota was stolen. Refusing to take the pilfering lying down, Taper used his experience to try to figure out how the thieves had done the job. The MyT app from Toyota, which, among other things, allows you to inspect the data logs of your vehicle, helped out. It provided evidence that electronic control units, or ECUs, and the RAV4 had detected malfunctions logged as diagnostic trouble codes, or DTCs, before the theft. According to Tyndall, quote, Ian's car dropped a lot of DTCs, unquote. 
Various systems had seemingly failed or suffered faults, including the front cameras and the hybrid engine control system. With some further analysis, it became clear that the ECUs probably hadn't failed, but communication between them had been lost or disrupted. The common factor was the CAN bus. In reality, the faults were generated as the thieves broke into a front headlamp and tore out the wiring, and used those exposed connections to electrically access the CAN bus and send messages telling other parts of the system to basically give the miscreants the car. Disconnecting the headlamp caused the wave of aforementioned network communications failures. But how were the crucial unlocked messages actually injected? Tabor took to the dark web to look for equipment that may have been involved in the theft of his car and found a number of devices targeting the CAN bus. He worked with Noel Loden of uh, vehicle forensics company Harper Shaw to look into reverse engineering a contender, a gadget capable of talking to a connected CAN bus and cunningly concealed within a normal-looking Bluetooth smart speaker. The fake speaker comes with cables you insert into an exposed bus connector, the CAN bus. You press a button on the box, and it sends the required messages to unlock the car. As the automotive industry develops ever more sophisticated tech systems for their vehicles, scumbags find more inventive ways to abuse these systems for their own ends. All right, so this was actually a much longer article, and there was links in this to a really interesting technical write-up from one of these engineers on how this was actually done. But I want to kind of go back and summarize this for you here. So your car is a computer and cell phone on wheels. Actually, it's many computers. And these computers that control various parts of your car, uh, things that used to be simple electrical connections, like on-off switches, <laughs> like, like your headlamps, are now all smart devices in one way, shape, or form. They all do fancier things. And so that all these devices can talk to each other and interact with each other and kind of query each other and see what you're currently doing and make sure they're coordinating everything properly, they all talk on a communications network. The technical term for this is a bus, not the kind of bus you drive, but more like an electrical bus, or it's a series of wires uh, all connected together, and these devices cooperate communicating on this bus, taking turns, sending messages to each other on the same physical set of wires. And this is common to almost all cars. And these CAN buses, by the way, are used in other things as well, like airplanes uh, and other kind of vehicles. And the technology in general is, is used all over the place. And what these guys did is they figured out that they could send messages on this communications bus, this communications network that would fool the car into doing certain things. And all they had to do was get access to the network. Well, the easiest way to get on this network was to get to the most outside electrical item they could find uh, that had a connection to this bus. In this case, it was the headlamp. So they were able to without popping the hood of the car, which would have probably required you to get into the vehicle they were able to remove one of the headlamps and expose this wiring system that let them send and receive messages on this CAN bus. And so there's a device that somebody sold, I think I recall it being like five grand or something like that. I don't know, but for some amount of money, you could buy this device that looks like a JBL Bluetooth speaker. But when you open it up, it's got this connector that allows you to, once you've removed the headlamp or any other device that's on the CAN bus, they probably have, they probably all have the same connectors. You connect this thing to it. And now you're on the network. You're on this car's communication network and you can start sending these fake messages or flooding it with messages. There's a lot of ways you could do this, but they found vulnerabilities in the, in this case, the Toyota, but it's probably on multiple cars. They found ways to trick the system into first unlocking the car door. And then second, making it so that you could just drive the car away. It's probably a push button car that didn't require a key. And so they disabled the engine immobilizer, which would mean the car is not supposed to start. And I've actually saw a video, somebody, and the, the, there may have been a link to this in the article. Uh, you can actually watch a video of these guys doing this. Two guys approach this car in the middle of the night. There's some sort of security camera on this car. They work the front headlight out. And within seconds after getting the headlight out, they unlock the car, get in the vehicle and drive away. So we've talked about privacy for cars. Well, there's also security for cars and cars have a ways to go. And this kind of harkens back to the CISA project uh, that we just talked about. These 
things need to be secure by default and by design. All these messages that are on the CAN bus certainly should be encrypted and they should be authenticated. One of the, another article that I read about this was basically saying we need zero trust. We need to adopt this zero trust methodology where just because the device is communicating on the car's network doesn't mean you should trust it. So uh, what can you do about this? Well, be on the lookout for any notices from your vehicle manufacturer in case they want to bring your car in for a software update or some other sort of recall that might address this problem. But in the meantime, there's, there's honestly, there's really not much you can do about this. If your car, you know, is parked outside overnight or left in a parking lot for a long period of time, you know, and it's, it's a modern vehicle, this is a potential risk. So we'll, we'll, we'll see if this becomes a bigger issue, but I wanted you to be aware of it. And also just bring it up in the context of, yeah, we, we need to do a better job of making these fancy schmancy <laughs> new tech products, including our cars, more secure by default. All right, last story, and, and this is a little bit of a long one, but it's really disturbing and creepy and just just wrong. And again, I, I, I hate to say it, but I think the only way to stop this is with regulation. And this article really, I think, makes that clear because... There were escape valves here. There were ways that the person that was affected by this, at least theoretically, could have prevented it. But in reality, the, the amount of money that these companies can make from doing the things they're doing is going to make is going to make it really hard for us as consumers to to prevent without making it just outright illegal. All right, and this is from Stat News, which I had not heard of, but um, uh, uh, it's again, it's a little bit long, but bear with me. I care deeply about privacy, and as a professional researcher, I take meticulous notes. During my recent maternity leave, I spent most of my hands-free time trying to figure out why my doctors were trying to give my medical data away to advertisers, even after I opted out. I had two different providers for the duration of my pregnancy because one closed their doors before my baby arrived. Upon my arrival, the staff would hand me a tablet made by Freesia, a company with a roughly $1.7 billion market cap, to check in. Freesia, and that's spelled P-H-R-E-E-S-I-A, collects demographic information, with fields including information as sensitive as the number of abortions the patient has had and their social security number. Each time I checked in, a form labeled Required in bright red letters sought authorization to share my data but that label was deceptive and felt intentionally so. Patients are indeed required to acknowledge a typical HIPAA privacy policy in order to be seen so that their physician's practices can use that data for internal operations or billing, for example. This HIPAA authorization form was different. Freesia was asking for consent to mine the data that I entered through the check-in process to show me targeted ads. Buried eight paragraphs down is language informing me I can opt out without losing access to my providers, but most readers likely click through hurriedly so they can get to their appointment in time. My OBGYNs are committed to the ethics of patient confidentiality. Why would they encourage me to give away my reproductive privacy at the digital front door to their office? I methodically clicked I decline to the terms at each routine visit and kept a photo record, but that wasn't enough to safeguard my consent. Staying in control of my data privacy is a burden that requires proactive attention. Pregnancy is exhausting, and I already had a very active toddler to run after, plus a full-time job. A patient seeking a long-awaited appointment with a specialist isn't going to cancel even if they are uncomfortable because getting care is the priority. And yet, privacy harms add up. The markup investigated hospitals that send your data to Facebook, Google, and others when you visit their websites. The Federal Trade Commission recently fined GoodRx $1.5 million for doing the same and banned the company from sharing consumers' sensitive health information for advertising when patients use its services to obtain discounts on prescription drugs. In September, after revisiting a June 2022 article about Freesia's privacy practices, I wrote to its privacy inbox to confirm that it had no consent for me on record. To my surprise, the representative, a compliance analyst, simply offered to revoke my authorization. I was horrified and suddenly racked with self-doubt. Had I accidentally clicked I accept when I was in pain or distracted, responding to a work email or coordinating a school pickup? Revoke it, I indicated, but please show me the proof that I had accepted in the first place. On the day I gave birth, the Freesia representative replied, quote, 
Unfortunately, since we have deleted your authorization, we no longer have a copy of that authorization on file to provide you, unquote. I read the response when I was emerging from the newborn haze a few weeks later and was incredulous. I wondered pessimistically if they could opt in everyone who opts out and simply revoke it when they're caught. Would a surgeon tear up your consent form after the operation was complete? The blank authorization form states that patients are entitled to a copy, but Frigia wouldn't give them to me. They told me I'd have to go through my providers to get them. In between feedings and sleep training, I went on a fishing expedition to trawl through the details of every single visit I'd had that year since they wouldn't disclose the specific date where, they allege, I consented. To excavate my forms from the practice that closed, I had to go through the company that acquired them, Optum Health, owned by United Health Group. When I reached their director of privacy at the end of November, she told me, quote, I don't think we've had other complaints about Freesia to date, unquote. It took me over a dozen calls, more than 30 emails, and in-person visits over two to three months just to get to that point. Even motivated patients would struggle to be heard. At the end of one visit after the birth, my physician asked if there was anything else. I briefly mentioned that I was having trouble obtaining a phantom Freesia authorization form. Kindly, she wrote her personal email down and the name of their practice's CEO and offered the very useful advice that I should go through patient services, not medical records. Optum requested an explanation from Freesia, and their senior product counsel admitted to me in December, quote, We have been able to conclude that you did not provide an authorization, unquote. Freesia attributes a source of their confusion to a blank authorization form they received on one occasion where the staff checked me in manually. Freesia told my provider, who then told me, that the date of that visit was in late November, about six weeks after Freesia confirmed they revoked my errant authorization. It doesn't add up, but I checked my records. I was midway through the tablet check-in when it started conducting a screening survey for postpartum depression. I stopped and handed it back to the staff, explaining I'd be happy to be screened by my physician, but not through Freesia. They pressured me to continue, but eventually conceded. Resisting the screens for patient intake services at any provider's office, such as by asking for paper copies, is a nuisance to the admin staff, who now have to locate papers that aren't on hand. Many ask you to sign blindly into the electronic signature box to acknowledge their privacy policy without showing it to you. Freesia says I was never shown my sponsored content on the basis of that dubious authorization form, but that doesn't mean I didn't experience any harm. Legal scholars Daniel Soloff and Daniel Citron, who, by the way, I've at various times tried to get both on the show, argue that the risk and anxiety of future injury is the harm, citing data breach victims who might avoid applying for a mortgage or a new job for fear that their credit reports are marred by theft. Avoiding healthcare services is impractical, but keeping my privacy at the doctor's office should be straightforward. When I followed Freesia's direction to read its privacy policy on its website, it used trackers, much like many hospital websites do, to send my data to Facebook, use session recording, which monitors the behavior of visitors on the sites, such as mouse movements and scrolling, and sent my data to ad tech companies, which I was able to check with Blacklight, a privacy inspector. I did everything I could to make educated, informed choices about my consent, and it wasn't enough. The policy solution is clear. Some types of data should simply never be shared for advertising purposes, a policy goal that the FTC is pursuing. The Department of Health and Human Services could also implement a rule against pressuring patients to provide consent, as health professor Frank Pasquale observed to me. To be sure, Freesia might argue that targeted ads are useful because they could make patients aware of a hitherto unknown cure and that is a core part of their business value proposition to investors. Indeed, Freesia's SEC filing notes that, quote, Patients exposed to a brand campaign using the Freesia platform are over four and a half times more likely, on average, to have a prescription filled for that product than control patients, unquote. But if there's a medication I should consider, isn't my provider equipped to make that recommendation without involving advertisers? The products we encounter at the doctor's office should be safe to use. Corrective actions would be simple and meaningful to make. Freesia could email patients a copy of their authorization forms, for example, and the form itself should be labeled optional, not required. But all privacy policies should contain clearly marked and usable fields to opt out at the time you acknowledge them. Moving towards a default opt-out model, and I think they mean opt-in here, would reverse the onus on the patient to navigate and verify complicated processes for revoking their consent, such as by writing to a privacy inbox after the fact. To protect patients, we should separate the business of ad tech from the business of getting care. 
I don't have a whole lot to add to this, uh, but this story is very indicative of, <laughs> of real problems that I have with the healthcare industry in particular. Uh, about extremely sensitive data. And I've been bumping into this a lot myself recently. I w had an appointment recently with a new specialist. I had something going on. I'm not going to get into it <laughs> that I wanted to get checked out. And so I was, I was going to this new doctor for the first time. And of course, when you do this, you start getting, you know, they ask you for your phone number and they want a mobile number so they can text you reminders for the thing and get confirmation that you're going to be at the appointment. And so I'm getting text messages and one of them was a pre-check-in thing. They want me to check in. And it's just, I don't know if it was Freesia, but I'm sure it was something just like Freesia. They contract with a third-party company that does the intake forms. And so they take you to a website in this case, and they want to get all your medical stuff up front, including medical history and family medical history and symptoms and a lot of really, really personal information. And you enter it through this third-party portal, and then they send that stuff on to the doctor. And I am sure that somewhere along the way, there is a privacy policy thing that they want you to opt into so they can share your data and you probably have to say no, uh, or they will do it by default. There's probably dark patterns they use. I, you know what? I don't know because I didn't click that link. Why? Because I knew exactly what was going to happen there. And so I, I've just stopped using those intake portals. And so I wait to go to the office and then I fill the forms out there personally. And then at least I've got paper in front of me. And from what I've seen, at least when you've, you're filling out the paper forms, it goes directly to the doctor's office. They're often the really crappy looking photocopies that they've, you know, multi-generation photocopies that are really kind of hard to read and they're getting kind of old and crusty, you know, and they've got to go find these things. When I went to this doctor's appointment, they actually, she gave me the look like, you know, so you've checked in online. I'm like, Nope. <laughs> She's like, okay. And you could, you could just tell like, Oh, I've got, you know, this, she was probably just thinking I was lazy and not, and I didn't get into my whole privacy spiel. So she, you know, found the clipboard, gave me a pen, gave me the forms, told me what to sign. Now my fault was I didn't get there early. I should have seen this coming. And of course I should have gotten there 15 minutes early to fill out all these stupid forms. But in this case, there were no third parties involved. Now what this woman was talking about is her doctor's office. And I have seen this at other doctor's offices just give you like an iPad or a tablet. And sometimes it's mounted on a kiosk. So you got to kind of stand there to enter your information, which sucks. Apparently what this woman found is they gave her a tablet, handed it to her. She could go sit down with it, but it was the same kind of thing. It was an electronic intake form. And had I been presented with that, I'm, I'm not sure what I would have done. I mean, I could have asked them if I could have paper forms instead, and they'd probably have to go dig them up. But here's the thing. I, I shouldn't have to worry about that. I shouldn't have to go through that uncomfortable conversation with the lady at the counter who's just trying to do her job. Look, I just want this information. Just fill out the forms. We got to have them, you know, stop making my life, life difficult. We shouldn't have to worry about all this stuff. All these third party companies that are coming in to, to help the doctor's office to collect this information. And Oh, by the way, as long as we're doing this, you know, you're going to let us take this information and monetize it in other ways really, really, really private information. And this is a huge gaping loophole in American privacy law around healthcare stuff. All right. I will stop ranting on this topic. I've, <laughs> I've covered it many times, but this story felt kind of different. And because of my recent experience, I thought it was relevant. So I uh, don't really have time for a dear Carrie question this week. We're already running along, but I did want to do a quick tip of the week. And this is about juice jacking. Now, I've talked about this before, but I uh, just wrote an article about this. It's the most recent article on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And I want to summarize it quickly here. Our phones are crucial in our lives. We have them with us all the time. We depend on them. Uh, there are actually many things you can't do anymore if you don't have your smartphone handy. For example, if you're traveling, if you're going through the airport, a lot of our boarding passes now are on our phones. You have to scan the little QR code from your phone to get on the plane. And so it is therefore essential that these devices are charged up, that they're working. And because people carry the phones with them all over the place and they're constantly in need of maybe topping it up with a little extra juice, there has been a proliferation of public free charging ports, USB charging ports usually. These are in airports, coffee shops, fast food restaurants, hotels, even in the transportation we are on, buses, planes, taxis, Ubers, everyone's offering, hey, you need a charge up device, just plug it in here. And either they have a cable there, like sometimes on the, in the 
taxis or whatever they actually have the cables there for you to plug in uh, other places just have usb ports and you're expected to have your own cable but i'm telling you not to do that the, the article from the fbi and the fcc basically is warning you that those usb ports can be used to hack your devices now is this a common thing no probably not but it's so simple to avoid that you just you shouldn't do it by the way, cables themselves can actually be used for hacking. And there's, uh, if you read the article, there's a link to one from uh, Hack5. They're legal to sell. Uh, that looks just like uh, an Apple-made lightning to USB cable. But built into that cable is technology to extract data and perhaps even hack your phone. You, and USB devices, by the way, are, are themselves, in many cases, computers. And that they have computer chips built into them. They have software on them. And that software can be replaced with malicious software. And in a lot of cases, it used to be that computers just blindly trusted that software because often it was like a mouse driver or a keyboard driver or something built right into the device so you don't have to go download it. And so, you know, in the old days, computers would just read that and say, hey, thanks for the driver. Let me run that right now so that you this so this consumer can use that device they just plugged in. Well, that turns out to be not a good thing to do. And a lot of comp computers now don't do that. In fact, what you should notice now a lot, in particular like on your smartphone, is you plug your phone into some device and you will get a pop-up in your phone saying, hey, do you want to trust this device? You need to pay attention when that pops up. Do not just blindly say, yes, okay. Like, for example, if I were plugging my phone in an, into a public charging USB port at an airport and then it suddenly popped up that message, that means that that USB port is doing more than just trying to provide power to your phone. Now, Okay, let me temper that a little bit. The modern charging devices do a lot of smart charging, like how to properly and quickly charge up your battery is something that takes a little bit of negotiation between the charger and the device. So the data lines on your on on your phone and on that cable are often used to negotiate optimal charging. So if you don't use the data, then it'll just do kind of dumb charging, which might be a little slower than normal. So it is possible, I guess, that when you plug into a charging port and you see a pop-up about trusting the device, that may be triggered because it's trying to negotiate optimal charging. Nevertheless, I wouldn't do that. So, so this is going to take a little planning on your part, but here's what you really should do. First of all, just suck it up and buy a bunch of extra charging cables so you always have one with you no matter what. And also little charging wall nuggets, little AC adapters, things that go from the, the prongs that go into the mains outlet or the AC outlet and have a USB port on the back. Make sure that that is yours, however, one that you own and control and one that you bought and that the cable that you use to connect from that to your device is one that you own and one that you bought as well. You can also look into getting some really nice battery chargers. Those are great, especially for travel. Some of them actually have built-in flip-out plugs for AC outlets as well, so they can also act as a, a regular charging adapter. But lastly, if you really just need to travel light and you don't want to carry these bulky batteries or these bulky charging adapters and you just want to be able to plug into some of these public ports, get yourself a power-only USB adapter or a USB cable sometimes called a data blocking cable, or originally it was actually called a USB condom, and use that between your device and this charging port. If you get the right kind, and I usually recommend the ones from PortaPow, P-O-R-T-A-P-O-W, they actually physically, if you look at them internally, they only have two wires in them instead of four. They only have the wires that connect power. They do not have the wires that connect data. So if you insist on using some dirty public port for charging, get yourself an adapter that will basically cut the data lines and only allow the power to go through. So links for all of that stuff, of course, can be found in the article. Just go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and you'll get it. Of course, if you're a newsletter subscriber, it's already sitting in your inbox right now. So there you have it, everybody, your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, we're running long. My voice is already getting a little bit hoarse, but a few quick notes before we go. First of all, I'm still working out the best way to get transcripts to you guys. I've got some tools that will do it. They're, they're not 
perfect. They're pretty good. Uh, I think they're good enough for me, which is what I really want is to be able to search through these things to find keywords and quickly find where I talked about things. I've got a couple solutions for that, but um, I'm still playing with. Eventually, what I want to do is have some sort of a master list of all podcast episodes in a big, long table format, you know, with the episode number, the title, the date, and a link to download a transcript. Now, obviously, I've, I've got to go back. I've got 300 plus episodes to go through. So I will start working my way through some of those, probably reverse chronologically. But eventually, I want to have a list so that you can download the transcripts from old shows as well. I'm also still looking to do a promotion where I can give away some of my super cool dragon challenge coins. If you want to check out what those look like, again, go to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons and search on challenge coins. Uh, look at the most recent article. You'll see those super cool D20 security enhancing challenge coins. Honestly, the part I can't figure out yet is I got to figure out the shipping because it's just so expensive to ship these things, particularly internationally. I'd love to still offer it. You know, maybe I could have the recipient somehow pay for the shipping, but uh, you know, I'm not a shipper. I don't really have a way for you to send me that money or pay for the shipping trying to figure that out, but I will figure, I will figure it out at some point, even if I only do it for us uh, or maybe North American listeners, but just stay tuned. I will be doing some sort of promotion so I can give away these wonderful 2.0 versions of my dragon challenge coins. Don't forget about the coupons. If you want to help other people with their privacy and security, I highly recommend it. That is really kind of the whole point. If you've done all these great things for yourself, help somebody else do them too. If you go to fdsd.me slash coupons, you can find out all the information there and download the really cool free coupons you can give away that will help other people to, for instance, set up a password manager or lock down their home network, things like that. If you've got a burning question for me, send it to Dear Carrie at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can get more information at fdsd.me slash QA. And if you look in the show notes, there's all sorts of other great stuff too. You can check out the dragon merch. You can learn how to generate passphrases, find other ways to support the mission, sign up for the newsletter, all sorts of great stuff. Anyway, all in the show notes. Next week, I've got a great interview with two of the folks from the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP, including the founder. That was a great discussion. Can't wait for you to hear that interview. And I also have uh, an interview with one of the two authors of the recent book, Ministry of Truth, which is a, a really cool book. So lots of great stuff in the works. Subscribe if you haven't. That way you won't miss any of it. So that's it for this week, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.